Chapter 9, Part 3 of Glimpses of Italian Society in the 18th Century by Hester Lynch Piozzi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Naples, Part 3. Let me now tell about the two assemblies, or Sio Conversazioni, where one goes in search of amusement as to the rooms of Bath or Tunbridge, exactly only that one of these places is devoted to the nobiltà the other is called dei boni amici and such is the state of subordination in this country that though the great people may come among the little ones and to be sure of the grossest adulation a merchant's wife shining in diamonds being obliged to stand up reverentially before the chair of a countess who does her the honour to speak to her the poor amici are totally excluded from the subscription of the nobles nor dare even to return the salutation of a superior should a good-natured person of that rank be tempted from frequently seeing them at the rooms to give them a kind nod in the street or elsewhere all this seems comical enough to us and i had much ado to look grave while a beautiful and well-educated wife of a rich banker here confessed herself not fit company for an ignorant mean-looking woman of quality but those such unintelligible doctrines make one for a moment ashamed both of one's sex and species that lady's knowledge of various languages her numerous accomplishments in a thousand methods of passing time away with innocent elegance and the sort of studied address never observed in italy before gave me an infinite delight in her society and daily increased my suspicion that she was a foreigner till nearer intimacy discovered her a german lutheran with a singular head of thick blonde hair so unlike those i see around me we grew daily better acquainted and she showed me but not indignantly at all some ladies from the higher assemblies sitting among these very low dressed indeed a knotting bag and compass in their lap to show their contempt of the company while such as spoke to them stood before their seat like children before a governess in england as long as the conversation lasted our duke and duchess of cumberland have made all naples adore them though by going richly dressed and behaving with infinite courtesy and good humour at the assembly or ball given in the lower rooms as the english comically called them a young palermitan prince applauded them for it exceedingly so i took the liberty to express my wonder oh replied he we are not ignorant how much english manners differ from our own i have already though but just eighteen years old as sovereign of my own state under the king of both sicilies condemned a man to death because he was a rascal but the law and the people govern in england i know my desire of hearing about sicily which we could not contrive to visit made me happy to cultivate prince Venimilia's acquaintance he was very studious very learned of his age and uncommonly clever told me of the antiquities his island had to boast with great intelligence and a surprising knowledge of ancient history it is wonderfully mortifying to think how little information after all can be obtained of anything new or anything strange 
though so far from one's own country. What I picked up most curious and diverting from our conversation was his expression of surprise when at our house one day he read a letter from his mother telling him that such a lady, naming her, remained still unmarried and even unbetrothed, though now past ten years old. She will, said I, perhaps break through old customs and choose for herself, as she is an orphan and has no one whom she need consult. Impossible, madam, was the reply. But tell me, Prince, for information's sake, if such a lady, this girl, for example, should venture to assert the rights of humanity and make a choice somewhat unusual, what would come of it? Why, nothing in the world would come of it, answered he. The lass would be immediately at liberty again, for no man so circumstanced could be permitted to leave the country alive, you know. Nor would her folly benefit his family at all, as her estate would be immediately adjudged to the next heir. No person of inferior rank in our country would therefore, unless absolutely mad, set his life to hazard for the sake of a frolic, the event of which is so well known beforehand. I will mention another talk I had with a Sicilian lady. We met at the house of the Swedish minister, Monsieur André uncle to the lamented officer who perished in our sovereign service in america and while the rest of the company were entertaining themselves with cards and music i began laughing in myself at hearing the gentleman and lady who sat next to me called by others don rafael and donna camilla because those two names bring gil Blas into one's head their agreeable and interesting conversation, however, soon gave my mind a more serious turn. When discoursing on the liberal premiums now offered by the King of Naples to those who are willing to rebuild and repeople Messina, Donna Camilla politely introduced me to a very sick but pleasing-looking lady, who she said was going to return thither. At which she, starting, cried, Oh, God forbid, dear friend! in an accent that made me think she had already suffered something from the concussions that overwhelmed that city in the year 1783. Her inviting manner, her soft and interesting eyes, whose languid glances seemed to show beauty sunk in sorrow and spirit oppressed by calamity, engaged my utmost attention, while Don Raphael pressed her to indulge the foreigner's curiosity with some particulars of the distresses she had shared. Her own feelings were all she could relate, she said, and those confusedly. You see that girl there, pointing to a child of about seven or eight years old who stood listening to the harpsichord, she escaped. I cannot for my soul guess how, for we were not together at the time. Where were you, madam, at the moment of the fatal accident? Who? Me. And her eyes lighted up with recollected terror. I was in the nursery with my maid, employed in taking stains out of some Brussels lace upon a brazier. Two babies, neither of them four years old, playing in the room. The eldest boy, dear lad, had just left us and was in his father's country house. 
the day grew so dark all of a sudden and the brazier oh lord jesus i felt the brazier slide from me and i saw it run down the long room on its three legs the maid screamed and i shut my eyes and knelt at a chair we thought all over but my husband came and snatching me up cried run run i know not how nor where but all amongst falling houses it was the people shrieked so and there was such a noise my poor son he was fifteen years old he tried to hold me fast in the crowd i remember kissing him dear lad dear lad i said i could speak just then but the throng at the gate oh that gate thousands at once ay thousands thousands at once and my poor old confessor too i knew him i threw my arms about his aged neck padre mio i said padre mio down he dropped a great stone struck his shoulder i saw it coming and my boy pulled me he saved my life dear dear lad but the crash of the gate the screams of the people the heat oh, such a heat i felt no more on't though i saw no more on't i waked in bed this girl by me and her father giving me cordials we were on shipboard they told me coming to naples to my brother's house here and do you think i'll ever go back there again oh no that's a cursed place I lost my son in it never never will i see it more all my friends try to persuade me but the sight of it would do my business if my poor boy were alive indeed but he our poor lad he loved his mother he held me fast no no i'll never see that place again god has cursed it now i'm sure he has a narrative so melancholy, so tender and so true, could not fail of its effect. I ran for refuge to the harpsichord where a lady was singing divinely. I could not listen, though. Her grateful sweetness who told the dismal story followed me thither. She had seen my ill-suppressed tears and followed to embrace me. The tale she had told saddened my heart and the news we heard returning to the Carcella did not contribute to lighten its weight. Well, an amiable young Englishman who had long lain ill there was now breathing his last, far from his friends, his country, or their customs. All easily dispensed with, perhaps derided during the bustle of a journey and the madness of superfluous health, but sure to be sighed after when life's last twilight shuts in precipitately closer and closer round a man and leaves him only the nearer objects to repose and dwell on such was captain dash's situation he had none but a foreign servant with him we thought it might soothe him to hear can i do anything for you sir in an english voice so i sent him my maid he had no commands, he said. He could not eat the jelly she had made him. He wished some clergyman could be found that he might speak to. Such a one was vainly inquired for till it was discovered that ill health had driven Mr. Menser to Naples, who kindly administered the last consolation a Christian can receive. 
and heard the next day when confined himself to bed of his countryman's being properly thrust by the banker into the book of protestante so they contemptuously call a dirty garden one drives by in this town where not less than a hundred people small and great from our island annually resort leaving fifty or sixty thousand pounds behind them at a moderate computation though if their bodies are obliged to take perpetual apartments here no better place has been hitherto provided for them than this kitchen ground on which grow cabbages cauliflowers etc sold to their country folks for double price i trow the remaining part of the season twentieth of january seventeen eighty six here are the most excellent the most incomparable fish i ever ate red mullets large as our mackerel and of singularly high flavour besides the calamaro or inkfish dainty worthy of imperial luxury almond and even apple trees in blossom to delight those who can be paid for coarse manners and confined notions by the beauties of a brilliant climate here are all the hedges in blow as you drive towards Podswally, and a snow of white mayflowers clustering round Virgil's tomb. So strong was the sun's heat this morning, even before eleven o'clock, that I carried an umbrella to defend me from his rays as we sauntered about the walks, which are spacious and elegant, laid out much in the style of St. James's Park, but with the sea on one side of you, the broad street called Chiaggia on the other. What trees are planted there, however, either do not grow up so as to afford shade, or else they cut them and trim them about to make them in pretty shapes, forsooth, as we did in England half a century ago. The castle on this hill called the Castel Sant Elmo would be much my comfort did I fix at Naples, for here are eight thousand soldiers constantly kept to secure the city from sudden insurrection his majesty most wisely trusting their command only to spanish or german officers or some few gentlemen from the northern states of italy that no personal tenderness for any in the town below may intervene if occasion for sudden severity should arise we went to-day and saw their garrison comfortably and even elegantly kept and i was wicked enough to rejoice that the soldiers were never but with the very utmost difficulty permitted to go among the townsmen for a moment to-morrow we mount the volcano whose present peaceful disposition has tempted us to inspect it more nearly though it appears little less than presumption thus to profane with eyes of examination the favourite alembic of nature while the great work of projection is carrying on guarded as all its secret caverns are too with every contradiction snow and flame solid bodies heated into liquefaction and rolling gently down one of its sides while fluids congeal and harden into ice on the other nothing can exceed the curiosity of its appearance now the lava is less rapid and stiffens as it flows stiffens too in ridges very surprisingly and gains an odd aspect not unlike the pasteboard waves representing sea to theatre but black 
because this year's eruption has been mingled with coal. The connoisseurs here know the different degrees, dates and shades of lava to a perfection that amazes me. And Sir William Hamilton's courage, learning and perfect skill in these matters is more people's theme here than the volcano itself. Bartolomeo, the cyclops of Vesuvius, as he is called, studies its effects and operations too with much attention and philosophical exactness, relating the adventures he's had with our minister on the mountain to every Englishman that goes up with great success. The way one climbs is by tying a broad sash with long ends round this Bartolomeo, letting him walk before one and holding it fast. As far as the hermitage there is no great difficulty, and to that place some choose to ride an ass, but I thought walking safer. And there you are sure of a welcome and refreshment from the poor good old man who sets up a little cross wherever the fire has stopped near his cell, shows you the place with a sort of polite solemnity that impresses, spreads his scanty provisions before you kindly, and tells the past and present state of the eruption accurately, inviting you to partake of his rushy couch, his frugal fare, his blessing and repose. Goldsmith. This hermit is a Frenchman. J'ai dansé dans mon lit tant de fois, said he. The expression was not sublime when speaking of an earthquake, to be sure. I looked among his books, however, and found Bruyere. Would not the Duc de Rochefoucauld have done better? said I. Did I never see you before, madam? said he. Yes, sure I have, and dressed you too, when I was a hairdresser in London and lived with Monsieur Matinon. And I dressed pretty Miss Wynne too in the same street. Vitel encore? Vitel encore? Ah, I am old now, continued he. I remember when black pins first came up. That the situation of the crater changed in this last eruption is of little consequence. It will change and change again, I suppose. The wonder is that nobody gets killed by venturing so near while red-hot stones are flying about them so. The Bishop of Derry did very nearly get his arm broke, and the Italians are always recounting the exploits of these rash Britons who look into the crater and carry their wives and children up to the top. While we are, with equal justice, amazed at the courageous Neapolitans who build little snug villages and dwell with as much confidence at the foot of Vesuvius as our people do in Paddington or Hornsey. When I inquired of an inhabitant of these houses how she managed, and whether she was not frightened when the volcano raged, lest it should carry away her pretty little habitation, let it go, said she. We don't mind now if it goes tomorrow. So as we can make it answer by raising our vines, oranges, etc. against you for three years, our fortune is made before the fourth arrives. And then, if the Red River comes, we can always run away, scaparabia, ourselves, and hang the property. We only desire three years' use of the mountain as a hot wall or forcing house, and then we are above the world, 
thanks be to god and saint januarius end of chapter nine part three